Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. I decided to read this... um publisher copy about Andrew Dworkin because I think it's a pretty excellent and succinct overview. So, radical feminist author Andrea Dworkin was a caricature of misandrist extremism in the popular imagination and a polarizing figure within the women's movement infamous for her anti-pornography stance and her role in the feminist sex wars of the 1980s. She still looms large with feminist demands for sexual freedom, evoked as a sensorial demagogue more than a decade after her death. Among the very first writers to use her own experiences of rape and battery in a revolutionary analysis of male supremacy, Dworkin was a philosopher outside and against the academy who wrote with a singular apocalyptic urgency. Last Days at Hot Slip brings together selections from Dworkin's work, both fiction and nonfiction, with the aim of putting the contentious position she's best known for in dialogue with her literary oeuvre. The collection charts her path from the militant primer woman-hating to the formerly complex polemics of pornography and intercourse and the raw experimentalism of her final novel, Mercy. It also includes Goodbye to All This, a scathing chapter from an unpublished manuscript that calls out her feminist adversaries, and My Suicide, a despairing long-form essay found on her hard drive after her death in 2005. Um, we have Amy Shoulder and Johanna Fateman to thank for this book. And... We have an amazingly great lineup of uh, readers here to read from Dworkin's work, and Amy will introduce them. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming out. So great to see you today. How's that? Is the sound good back there? Good. Thank you. Um, I want to thank Skylight books and Bo, thank you for this necessary space and offering it to us today. I want to thank our publishers, Semiotext, who were really the best. Um, we asked artists who make important feminist work to join us to read from Last Days at Hot Slit, and I'd like to introduce them to you now. Um, Reka Aoki, Christina Catherine Martinez, uh, Jibs... Cameron, Anna Joy Springer, and now Bustamante. Thank you in advance, and thank you all for coming out today. Um, books are available for purchase. I hope you'll get a copy before you go home tonight. Um, I just want to say briefly that um, Johanna and I dreamed up this project to reconsider and represent the works of Andrea Dworkin four years ago or more, I, I fear. Um, it's incredible how the public conversations about gender violence, misogyny, rape culture, and sexual harassment have changed in that time. Uh, it's also incredible to see how the works of this radical feminist, Andrea Dworkin, who has been for so long maligned and dismissed how this work feels relevant um, and provocative, almost like it was written today. Um, We've been asked about the reception for this book. The book has been out for about a month. It's been getting uh, an enormous amount of press, way beyond our expectations. Um, it's appeared in the New York Times half a dozen times, The New Yorker, uh, New York Magazine's The Cut, Book Forum, Los Angeles Review of Books, the New York Review of Books excerpt excerpted Johanna's essay. The list goes on and um, I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that we're in this second year of public reckoning of newly reported gender violence, and yet they're really, you know, for all of the kind of hideous individual and collective revelations in the Me Too era, there hasn't been a lot of opportunity to go kind of 30,000 feet above and kind of think about you know, and talk about what are the roots of misogyny and the epic infrastructure of patriarchy and capitalism that have provided this, like, systemic, systematic uh, woman-hating. Uh, and Andrea Dworkin does that. Uh, but I'm also sure that this reception has something to do with uh, and is in large part due to the fact of 
my co-editor. Um, and for very good reason, when Johanna Feitman puts her mind and her name on a project, people pay attention. Johanna's been making contributions to feminist culture for a very long time, but is more recently doing so as a published writer. Uh, in the course of putting this collection together, we've had the opportunity to be in regular conversation, uh, and I've seen the astonishing gifts of her intellect and her way with words, and um, this rich exchange of ideas and reading together has culminated in the writing of her really breathtakingly smart and complex introduction to this collection. So without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce Johanna and welcome her to you. Hi, everybody, and thank you. Um, I didn't know Amy was going to make me tear up, but <laughs> thank you, Amy. Um, thank you, Skylight and Bo and our readers. Uh, so the text that, that Bo read is actually, you know, as these things happen, it was drawn from my introduction. So what I'm going to read is sort of the extended remix version of of what um, Bo read with, so you'll notice some repeated elements. Um, <clears throat> I hope you don't mind. Through chronological excerpts from her most infamous nonfiction works and, and examples of her overlooked fiction, as well as two previously unpublished works, Last Days at Hot Slit aims to put the contentious positions Andrea Dworkin is best known for in dialogue with her little literary oeuvre. An iconic figure of so-called anti-sex feminism, Dworkin still looms large in feminist demands for sexual freedom. In her singular scorched earth theory of representation, pornography is fascist propaganda, a weapon as crucial to the ever escalating war on women as Goebbels' caricatures were to Hitler's rise. In her analysis of the sex class system, prostitution is a founding institution, the bottom rung of hell. And in her vision of sexual liberation, there's no honor in squeezing pleasure from the, from the status quo. S&M is nihilistic play acting founded on farcical consent or craven collaboration. Dachau bought, brought into the bedroom and celebrated. And so in the feminist, feminist insistence that women have the right to make and use pornography, to choose sex work, to engage in every kind of consensual act without shame, and to do so as revolutionaries, Dworkin is the sensorial demagogue we shoot down. But nearly four decades after the historic Barnard Conference on Sexuality, which, which drew the lines of the feminist sex wars, pro-sex feminists staking out territory for the investigation of pleasure while women against pornography protested outside, and nearly three decades since the ascendance of the third wave signaled her definitive defeat, we hope it's possible to con consider what was lost in the fray. This collection is the product of years of conversation. When Amy Shoulder, my co-editor, invited me to contribute to ICON um, 2014, <laughs> a collection of nine personal essays for which each author, author chose a public figure who influenced, intrigued, or haunted her, she reignited a teenage obsession of mine, which proved to be contagious. By choosing Dworkin as my subject, I returned to a moment in the 1990s when my discovery of her militant voice fueled my nascent feminist rage and when I quickly disavowed her politics with the kind of clean break that youth affords. But for Amy and me both, in reading Dworkin's books with fresh eyes, measuring them against her lingering presence and feminist discourse as a symbol, frozen in time at the helm of a failed crusade, we found much more than the anti-porn and transgents she's reviled or revered for. Dworkin was a philosopher outside of and against the academy, one of the first writers to use her own experiences of rape and battery in a revolutionary analysis of male supremacy. supremacy. With astonishing vulnerability and searching rigor, she wrote of fucking, whoring, and the atrocity of rape, she wrote without apology, wielding the blunt, ugly language most appropriate to the bitter subject matter of her life. And while her, her work is by no means all 
autobiographical. Her lifelong unflinching inquiry into women's subjugation was founded on a simple desire. I wanted to find out what happened to me and why. Dworkin's life comes into focus through the overlapping accounts of her essays and fiction. At age nine, left alone for the first time to see a movie, she's sexually assaulted in the dark of the theater. The commitment of the child molester is absolute, she writes, regarding the incident in my life as a writer. And both his insistence and his victory communicate to the child his experience of her. A breachable, breakable thing any stranger can wipe his dick on. Her novel Mercy from 1990 complements that cold indictment with the flustered anguished anguish of a child. Narrated by her first-person protagonist, also named Andrea, it opens with a long scene in which the trauma of that day is defined by the twin horrors of the molester's violation and her mother's shame-tinged panic to confirm that nothing happened. While a freshman at Bennington in 1965, participating in the college college's work program as a volunteer for the Student Peace Union in New York, she's arrested protesting the Vietnam War outside the UN and held at the Women's House of Detention for four days, where she's subject subjected to a sadistic pelvic exam, a gynecological rape. Upon her release, bleeding, she writes outraged letters to the papers about her ordeal. Her efforts lead to a highly publicized grand jury hearing about the jail's conditions at which she testifies. In a New York Times article, one of the many reports, um, sorry, one of the many reports that would mortify her parents, Dworkin is a plump girl with black hair and dark eyes who describes how the leering, brutal doctor questioned her. He asked me where I went to school. Then he wanted to know how many Bennington girls were virgins. In an apt foreshadowing of what's to come, at age 18, before her feminist awakening is even on the horizon, she's willing to brand herself with an image of sexual shame in the name of justice. Christina, Now, Rika, Anna Joy, Jibs, and Amy will be reading very condensed excerpts from 10 of Dworkin's works. We aren't representing anything in its entirety. Instead, we hope to, to represent the rhetorical and philosophical scope of last days of hot slit in an almost impressionistic way, through passages from her book-length nonfiction and fiction works, speeches, articles, and a letter to her parents. Our readers' radical voices will, I think, bring Dworkin's ideas into conversation with our feminist present and the most urgent issues we face today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Christina, and I'm going to read from Woman Hating. This book is an action, a political action where revolution is the goal. It has no other purpose. It is not cerebral wisdom or academic horseshit or idea. I love that. Academic horseshit <laughs> or ideas carved in granite or destined for immortality. It is part of a process and its context is change. It is part of a planetary movement to restructure community forms and human consciousness so that people have power over their own lives, participate fully in community, live in dignity and freedom. The commitment to ending male dominance as the fundamental psychological, political, and cultural reality of Earth-lived life is the fundamental revolutionary commitment. It is a commitment to transformation of the self and transformation of the social reality on every level. Until the appearance of the brilliant anthology Sisterhood is Powerful and Kate Millett's extraordinary book Sexual Politics, women did not think of themselves as oppressed people. Most women, it must be admitted, still do not. But the women's movement as a radical liberation movement in America, with a K, can be dated from the appearance of those two books. We learn as we reclaim our history that there was a feminist movement which organized around the attainment of the vote for women. We learn that those feminists were also ardent abolitionists. Women came out as abolitionists, out of closets, kitchens, and bedrooms, into public meetings, newspapers, and the streets. Two activist heroes of the abolitionist movement were black women, Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, and they stand as prototypical revolutionary models. 
Those early American feminists thought that suffrage was the key to participation in American democracy and that free and enfranchised, the former slaves would in fact also be free and enfranchised. Those women did not imagine that the vote would be effectively denied blacks through literacy tests, property qualifications, and vigilante police action by white racists. Nor did they imagine that separate but equal doctrine and the uses to which it would be put. Feminism and the struggle for black liberation were parts of a compelling whole. That whole was called, ingenuously perhaps, the struggle for human rights. The fact is that consciousness, once experienced, cannot be denied. Once women experience themselves as activists and begin to understand the reality and meaning of oppression, they begin to articulate a politically conscious feminism. There has been little recognition that the destruction of the middle class lifestyle is crucial to the development of decent community forms in which all people can be free and have dignity. There was certainly no program to deal with the realities of the class system in America, also spelt with a K. On the contrary, most of the women's movement has, with appalling blindness, refused to take that kind of responsibility. The analysis of sexism in this book articulates clearly what the oppression of women is, how it functions, how it is rooted in psyche and culture. But that analysis is useless unless it is tied to a political consciousness and commitment which will totally redefine community. One cannot be free, never, not ever, in an unfree world. And in the course of redefining family, church, power relations, all the institutions which inhabit and order our lives, there is no way to hold on to privilege and comfort. To attempt to do so is destructive, criminal, and intolerable. The Rape Atrocity in the Boy Next Door, 1975. I'm here tonight to try to tell you as much as I can about what you are up against as women in your efforts to live decent, worthwhile, and productive human lives. And that is why I choose tonight to speak about rape, which is Though no contemporary American with a K, male writer will tell you the dirtiest four-letter word in the English language. Once you understand what rape is, you will understand the forces that systematically oppress you as women. Once you understand what rape is, you will be able to begin the work of changing the values and institutions of this patriarchal society so that you will not be oppressed anymore. Once you understand what rape is, you will be able to resist all attempts to mystify and mislead you into believing that the crimes committed against you as women are trivial, comic, irrelevant. Once you understand what rape is, you will find the resources to take your lives as women seriously and to organize as women against the persons and institutions which demean and violate you. As women, we live in the midst of a society that regards us as contemptible. We are despised as a gender class, as sluts and liars. We are the victims of continuous, malevolent, and sanctioned violence against us, against our bodies and our whole lives. Our characters are defamed as a gender class so that no individual woman has any credibility before the law or in society at large. Our enemies, rapists, and their defenders not only go unpunished, they remain influential arbiters of morality. They have high and esteemed places in the society. They are priests, lawyers, judges, lawmakers, politicians, doctors, artists, corporate executives, psychiatrists, and teachers. What can we do who are powerless by definition 
and in fact do about it? The fact is that in order to stop rape and all of the other systematic abuses against us, we must destroy these very we must destroy these very definitions of masculinity and femininity of men and women. We must destroy completely and for all time the personality structures dominant, active, or male, and submissive, passive, or female. We must excise them from our social fabric, destroy any and all institutions based on them, render them vestigial useless. We must destroy the very structure of culture as we know it, its art, its churches, its laws. We must eradicate from consciousness and memory all of the images, institutions, and structural mental sets that turn men into rapists by definition and women into victims by definition. Until we do, rape will remain our, primer, our primary sexual model and will, women will be raped by men. Until we do, rape will remain our primary sexual model and women will be raped by men. As women, we must begin this revolutionary work. When we change those who define themselves over and against us, we will have, God, I have to read this again, sorry. When we change, those who define themselves over and against us will have to kill us all. Change or die. Letter to Mom and Dad, 1978. Dear Mom and Dad, I've published articles in the past years that I haven't mentioned because there is no particular reason to. Or, for instance, when a piece appeared in Ms. quite a while ago, I mentioned it. But there was no particular reason to go into it. Now, I have just published a piece which I want to tell you about. Since I told you about my lesbian pride lecture before our blood appeared, it has been quite difficult for me to talk about my work with you. I'm sure you can understand that. In the July issue of Mother Jones, a leftist magazine published in San Francisco but distributed nationally, quite a fine magazine, I have an essay of which I am very proud, but which I'm afraid will upset you and cause you pain. They have titled it, The Bruise That Doesn't Heal. A rather silly title, I think. I called it, A Battered Woman Survives. It is first person, nonfiction, about the fact that I was a battered wife. The fact that I managed to write this after so many years of not being able to is something of which I am proud. I wrote it because I want to help the literally millions of women who are in the situation I was in, because I have the talent to write. I also have a responsibility to write the truth about many things that many people do not want to or cannot face. The piece mentions you in passing, but does not blame you. I do not go into what happened in Amsterdam when you came to visit. It is not a piece about particulars but about the general experience. I wrote the piece around my last birthday when I turned 31. The piece should not embarrass you, but I'm afraid it will since my work has so often in the past. You will probably receive this before I call on Sunday to say Happy Father's Day. <laughs> I do not know if you will see this essay, the essay before then. I could have gone along, leaving to chance whether you would see it or not, but I did not want to risk having you ignorant of the piece if someone brings it up. Love, Andrea.
pornography from 1979. The photograph is captioned beaver hunters. Two white men dressed as hunters sit in a black Jeep. The Jeep occupies almost the whole frame of the picture. The two men carry rifles. The rifles extend above the frame of the photograph into the white space surrounding it. The men and the Jeep face into the camera. Tied onto the hood of the black Jeep is a white woman. She's tied with thick rope. She is spread eagle. Her pubic hair and crotch are the dead center of the car hood and the photograph. Her head is turned to one side, tied down by rope that is pulled taut across her neck, extended to and wrapped several times around her wrists, tied around the rearview mirrors of the Jeep, brought back around her arms, crisscrossed under her breasts and over her thighs, drawn down and wrapped around the bumper of the Jeep, tied around her ankles. The men in the photograph are self-possessed. That is, they possess the power of self. This power radiates from the photograph. They're armed, first in the sense that they're fully clothed, second, because they carry rifles, which are made more prominent, suggesting erection, by extending outside the frame of the photograph. Third, because they're shielded by being inside the vehicle, framed by the windshield. Fourth, because only the top parts of their bodies are shown. The woman is possessed, that is, she has no self. A captured animal, she's naked, bound, exposed on the hood of the car outdoors. Her features not distinguishable because of the way her head is twisted and tied down. The men sit supremely still and confident, displaying the captured prey for the camera. The stillness of the woman is like the stillness of death, underlined by the evocation of taxidermy in the caption, Beaver Hunters. He is, he takes. She is not, she is taken. The photograph celebrates the physical power of men over women. They are hunters, use guns. They have captured and bound a woman. They will stuff her and mount her. She is a trophy. While one could argue that the victory of two armed men over a woman is no, physical, no evidence of physical superiority, the argument is impossible as one experiences or remembers the photograph. The superior strength of men is irrefutably established by the fact of the photograph and the knowledge that one brings to it, that it expresses an authentic and commonplace relationship of the male strong to the female weak, wherein the hunt, the targeting, tracking down, pursuing, the chase, the overpowering of, the immobilizing of, and even the wounding of is common practice, whether called sexual pursuit, seduction, or romance. The photograph exists in an immediate context that supports the assertion of this physical power. And in this society, that is the larger context, there's no viable and meaningful reality to contradict the physical power of male over female expressed in the photograph. I just want to say I'm really honored to be in this company. Uh, Ice and Fire, 1986. <clears throat> Before Juan comes, we were in the kitchen talking about our movie. We're going to make a movie, a tough, unsentimental, avant-garde little number about women in a New York City prison. I have written it. It strangely resembles my own story. Jailed over Vietnam, the woman is endlessly strip-searched strip strip and then mangled inside by jail doctors. N will make it, direct it, shoot it, edit it. It's her film. 
R is the star. She's N's lover for years, plans on forever. It is on the skids, but she hangs on, pretending not to know. She is movingly loyal and underneath pathetically desperate. N and I are not allowed to be lovers, so we never are alone. We evade the spirit of the law. N refuses to make a political film. Politics, she argues, is boring and temporary. <clears throat> Vietnam will be over and forgotten. A work of art must outlast politics. She uses words sparingly. Her language is almost austere, never ornate. We are artists, she says. I am liberal with her. She always brings out my generosity. I take no hard line on politics. I too want art. We need money. Most of ours goes for cigarettes, after which there isn't any left. We fuck for drugs. Speed is cheaper than food. We fuck for pills. We fuck for prescriptions. We fuck for meals when we have to. We fuck for drinks and bars. We fuck for tabs of acid. We fuck for capsules of mescaline. We fuck for loose change. We fuck for fun. We fuck for adventure. We fuck when we are hot from the weather. We fuck for big bucks to produce our movie. In between, we discuss art and politics. One night, N bring, brings home a fuck. A Leo named Leo. <laughs> he steals our speed and all our cash. The speed is gone. I go into emergency gear. I pretend it is a joke. How the fuck, I ask her repeatedly, can anyone be stupid enough to fuck someone who says he is a Leo named Leo? <laughs> I ask this question, tell this joke many times. I'm scared. We find a trick. She fucks him because she lost the pills. It's our code and her own personal sense of courtesy. We get the pills, a Leo and Lim Leo, I say. How can anyone be so stupid? We pop the pills, a Leo named Leo. We sit in our middle room. She is drinking scotch and I'm drinking vodka. We are momentarily flush and the pills hit. A Leo named Leo. We laugh until we start to cry. We hold our guts and shake. A Leo named Leo. She grins from ear to ear. She's done something incredibly witty. Fucked a Leo named Leo. We are incredibly delighted with her. <laughs> right Wing Women, 1983. The accounts of rape... Wife beating, forced childbearing, medical butchering, sex motivated murder, forced prostitution, physical mutilation, sadistic psychological abuse, and the other common places of the female experience that are excavated from the past or given by contemporary survivors should leave the heart seared, should leave the mind in anguish, should leave the conscience in upheaval. But they do not. No matter how often these stories are told, with whatever clarity or eloquence, bitterness or sorrow, they might as well have been whispered in the wind or written in sand. They disappear as if they were nothing. The tellers and the stories are ignored or ridiculed, threatened back into, dis into silence or destroyed, and the experience of female suffering is buried in cultural invisibility and contempt. Because women's testimony is not and cannot be validated by the witness of men who have experienced the same events and given them the same value, the very reality of abuse sustained by women, despite its overwhelming pervasiveness and constancy, is negated. It is negated in the transactions of everyday life, and it is negated in the history books, left out, and it is negated by those who claim to care about suffering but are blind to this suffering. The problem, simply stated, is that one must believe in the existence of the person in order to recognize the authenticity of her suffering. Neither men nor women believe in the existence of women as significant beings. It is impossible to remember as real the suffering of someone who by definition has no legitimate claim to dignity or freedom. Someone who is in fact viewed as something, as an object or an absence. And if a woman, an individual woman multiplied by billions does not believe in her own discrete existence and therefore cannot credit the authenticity of her own suffering, she is erased, canceled out, and the meaning of her life, whatever it is, whatever it might have been, is lost. 
This loss cannot be calculated or comprehended. It is vast and it is awful and nothing will ever make up for it. Intro to Intercourse, 1995. Can a man read Intercourse? Can a man read a book written by a woman in which she uses language without it ever becoming decorative or pretty? Can a man read a book written by a woman in which she, the author, has a direct relationship to experience, ideas, literature, life, including fucking, without mediation? such that what she says and how she says it are not determined by boundaries men have set for her. Can a man read a woman's work if it does not say what he already knows? Can a man let in a challenge not just to his dominance, but to his cognition? And specifically, I am saying that I know more than men and specifically, am I saying that I know more than men about fucking? Yes, I am. <laughs> Not just different, more and better, deeper and wider, the way anyone used knows the user. Intercourse does not narrate my experience to measure it against Norman Mailer or D.H. Lawrence's. The first person is embedded in a way the book is built. I use Tolstoy, Kobo Abe, James Baldwin, Tennessee Williams, Isaac Bashevis, Singer, Flaubert, not as authorities, but as examples. I use them. I cut and slice into them in order to exhibit them. But the authority behind the book, behind each and every choice, is mine. In formal terms, then, intercourse is arrogant, cold, and remorseless. You, the reader, will not be looking at me, the girl. You will be looking at them. In intercourse, I created an intellectual and imaginative environment in which you can see them. The very fact that I usurp their place, make them my characters, lessens the unexamined authority that goes not with their art, but with their gender. I love the literature these men created, but I will not live my life as if they are real and I am not. Nor will I tolerate the continuing assumption that they know more about women than we know about ourselves. And I do not believe that they know more about intercourse. Habits of deference can be broken, and it is up to us writers to break them. Submissions can be refused, and I refuse it. In general, women get to say yay or nay to intercourse, which is taken to be a synonym for sex, act sex. In this reductive, brave new world, women like sex or we do not. We are loyal to sex or we are not. The range of emotions and ideas expressed by Tolstoy et al. is literally forbidden to contemporary women. Remorse, sadness, despair, alienation, obsession, fear, greed, hate, all of which men, especially male artists, express are simple no votes for women. Compliance means yes. A simplistic rah-rah means yes. Affirming the implicit right of men to get laid regardless of the consequences to women is a yes. Reacting against force or exploitation means no. Affirming pornography and prostitution means yes. I like it is a standard for citizenship. And I want it pretty much exhausts the First Amendment's rights, amendments meaning for women. Critical thought or deep feeling puts one into the Puritan camp, that hallucinated place of exile where women with complaints are dumped, after which we can be abandoned. Why, socially speaking, feed a woman you can't fuck? Why fuck a woman 
you might ask a question, let alone have a complex emotional, let me start over with that one. Why fuck a woman who might ask a question, let alone have a complex emotional life or political idea? I refuse to tolerate this loyalty oath approach to women and intercourse or women and sexuality or more to the point women and men. Intercourse, 1983. Women are different, but equal. Social policy is different from private sexual behavior. The staggering civil inequalities between men and women are simple, clear injustices, unrelated to the natural, healthy act of intercourse. There is nothing implicit in intercourse that mandates male dominance in society. Each individual must be free to choose. And so we expand tolerance for those women who do not want to be fucked by men. Sex is between individuals, and social relations are between classes. And so we preserve the privacy of the former while insisting on the equality of the latter. Women flourish as distinct brilliant individuals of worth in the feminine condition, including in intercourse, and have distinct valuable qualities. For men and women, fucking is freedom. For men and women, fucking is the same, especially if the woman chooses both the man and the act. Intercourse is a private act engaged in by individuals and has no implicit social significance. Repression, as opposed to having intercourse, leads to authoritarian social policies, including those of male dominance. Intercourse does not have a metaphysical impact on women, although, of course, particular experiences with individual men might have psychological impact. Intercourse is not a political condition or, or, or event or circumstance because it is natural. Intercourse is not occupation or invasion or loss of privacy because it's natural. Intercourse does not violate the integrity of the body because it is Natural. Intercourse is fun, not oppression. Intercourse is pleasure, not an expression or confirmation of a state of being that is either ontological or social. Intercourse is because the God who did not exist made it. If he, he did it right, not wrong. And he does not hate women, even if women hate him. Liberals refuse categorically to inquire into even a possibility that there's a relationship between intercourse per se and the low status of women. Conservatives use what appears to be God's work to justify a social and moral hierarchy in which women are lesser than men. Radicalisms on the meaning of intercourse, its political impact towards women, its impact on our very being itself is tragedy or suicide. There are efforts to reform the circumstances that surround intercourse, the circumstances that at least apparently contribute to its disreputable in terms of rights and justice legend and legacy. These reforms include more deference to female sensuality prior to the act, less verbal assault as part of sexual expressiveness toward women, some lip service to female initiation of sex and female choice during lovemaking, less romanticizing of rape, at least as an articulated social goal. Those who are political activists working toward the equality of women have other contextual reforms they want to make. Economic equ equity, women elected to political office, strong self-respecting role models for girls, emphasis on physical strength and self-defense, athletic excellence and endurance, rape laws that work, strategies for decreasing violence against women. These contextual reforms would then provide for the possibility that intercourse could be experienced in a world of social equality for the sexes. These reforms do not in any way address the question of whether intercourse itself can be an expression of sexual equality.
okay. Um, um, this one's called, I, I want a 24-hour truce during which there is no rape. I want to talk to you about equality, what equality is and what it means. It isn't just an idea. It's not some insipid word that ends up being bullshit. It doesn't have anything to, at all to do with all of those statements like, oh, that happens to men too. I name, an, I name an abuse and I hear, oh, it happens to men too. That is not the equality we are struggling for. We could change our strategy and say, well, okay, we want equality. We'll stick something up the ass of a man every three minutes. You've never heard that from the feminist movement because for us, equality has real dignity and importance. It's not some dumb word that can be twisted and made to look stupid as if it had no real meaning. As a way of practicing equality, some vague idea about giving up power is useless. Some men have vague thoughts about a future in which men are going to give up power or an individual man is gonna give up some kind of privilege that he has. That is not what equality means either. Equality is a practice. It's an action. It's a way of life. It's a social practice. It is an economic practice. It is a sexual practice. It can't exist in a vacuum. You can't have it in your home if, when the people leave the home, he is in a world of his supremacy based on the existence of his cock and she is in a world of humiliation and degradation because she is perceived to be inferior and because her sexuality is a curse. This is not to say that the attempt to practice equality in the home doesn't matter. It matters, but it's not enough. If you love equality, if you believe in it, if it is the way you want to live, not just men and women together in a home, but men and men together in a home and women and women together in a home, if equality is what you want and what you care about, then you have to fight for the institutions that will make it socially real. I wanna see this men's movement make a commitment to ending rape because that is the only meaningful commitment to equality. It is astonishing that in our worlds of feminism and anti-sexism, we never talk seriously about ending rape, ending it, stopping it, no more. No more rape. In the back of our minds, we are holding on to its inevitability as the last preserve of the biological. Do we think that it's always going to exist no matter what we do? All of our political actions are lies if we don't make a commitment to ending the practice of rape. This commitment has to be political. It has to be serious. It has to be systematic. It has to be public. It can't be self-indulgent. Uh, in memory of Nicole Brown Simpson, 1994. We blame her as the batterer did. We ask why she stayed, though we, of course, were not prepared to stand between her and the batterer so that she could leave. And if, after she's dead, we tell the police that we heard the accused murderer beat her in 1977 and saw her with black eyes, as Nicole's neighbors did, we will not be allowed to testify, which may be the only justice in this, since it has taken us 17 years to bother to speak at all. I had such neighbors. Every battered woman learns early on not to expect help. A battered woman confides in someone when she does to leave a trail. She overcomes her fears of triggering violence in the batterer if he finds out that she has spoken in order to leave a verbal marker somewhere with someone. She thinks the other person's word will be believed later. Every battered woman faces death more than once, and each time the chance is real, the batterer decides. Eventually, she's fractured inside by the continuing degradation, and her emotional world is a landscape of desperation. Of course, she smiles in public and is a good wife, 
He insists, and so do we. Nicole called a battered woman shelter five days before her death. The jury will not have to listen, but we must. Evidence of the attacks on her by Simpson that were witnessed in public will be allowed at trial, but most of what a batterer does is in private. The worst beatings, the sustained acts of sadism have no witnesses. Only she knows. To refuse to listen to Nicole Brown Simpson is to refuse to know. Those of us who are not jurors have a moral obligation to listen to Nicole Simpson's words, to how O.J. Simpson locked her in a wine closet after beating her and watched TV while she begged him to let her out, to how, in a different hotel room, quote, O.J. threw me against the walls and on the floor, put bruises on my arm and back. The window scared me, thought he'd throw me out. End quote. We need to hear how he, quote, threw a fit, chased me, grabbed me, threw me into walls, threw all my clothes out the window into the street, three floors below me, bruised me. We need to hear how he stalked her after their divorce. Everywhere I go, she told a friend, he shows up, and I really think he's going to kill me. We need especially to hear her call to a battered woman shelter five days before the murder. In ruling that call inadmissible, Ito said, to the man or woman on the street, the relevance and probative value of such evidence is both obvious and compelling. However, the laws and appellate court decisions that must be applied held otherwise. The man and woman on the street need to hear what was obvious to her, the foreknowledge that death was stalking her. We need to believe Nicole's words to know the meaning of terror. It isn't a movie of the week, and to face the treason we committed against her life by abandoning her. When I was being beaten by a shrewd and dangerous man 25 years ago, I was buried alive in a silence that was unbearable and, un and unbreachable and unbearable. Imagine Nicole being buried alive, then dead in noise, our pro-woman, pro-equality noise, our pro-family, pro-law and order noise. For what it's worth to Nicole, nothing. The shame of battery is all ours. A woman has a right to own her bed, a home she can't be thrown out of, and for her body not to be ransacked and broken into. She has a right to safe refuge, to expect her family and friends to stop the batterer by law or force before she's dead. She has a constitutional right to a gun and a legal right to kill if she believes she's going to be killed. And a batterer's repeated assaults should lawfully be taken as intent to kill. Everybody's against wife abuse, but who's prepared to stop it? Goodbye to all this. Goodbye, sisters, I've had it. Goodbye, Pat, cow, cunt, silly bitch. Whatever obscenity you are organizing for the right to call other women this week, <laughs> fare thee well. Enjoy. Keep writing articles for Bob Guccione on how to tie women up. Bet the money is fun, too. <laughs> Goodbye, Ellen. Bad, bad Ellen. Naughty girl. Cheeky thing. Sexy little devil. Goodbye to the contradictions. Good girl. Bad girl. Good Jew. Bad Jew. How do you do it? It was all too deep, too radical, too taboo for conventional, conforming, ladylike, virginal me, anyway. Have a good time lacerating Freud and Marx and enjoy the fantasy. Use the perfume, go all the way. Goodbye, Amber, hot stuff, outlaw, Jesse James, but oh so femme fatale, daring to be blonde, daring to wear makeup. It takes the breath away, and Amber, really it does, so brave. 
keep fighting for the right to be femme, honey. Take it all the way to the Pentagon. Bring the military-industrial complex to its knees. <laughs> Goodbye, Gail. Are you already on your knees? Just keep shuffling along. <laughs> Reading Foucault really is kinky. Chained or not, it brings a whole new dimension to masochism. bow and scrape except when standing up for your lover's right to dress like a Nazi and then hang tough kike being a woman and a Jew means double your pleasure chew the gum too go all the way <laughs> goodbye all you swastika wielding dykettes all you tough dangerous feminist leatherettes all you sexy non-monogamous it does take the breath away pierced whipped bitten, fist-fucked, and fist-fucking, wild, wonderful, heretofore, unimaginable feminist girls. Keep the Jews in line and the cows dying. Oh, for the good old days of lesbian, feminist, vegetarians, for Jesus. <laughs> Goodbye to stupid feminist academics who romanticize prostitution. <laughs> And to stupid feminist magazine editors who romanticize pornography and fetishism and sadomasochism. And especially goodbye to stupid feminist writers who romanticize rituals of degradation and symbols of inferiority. And oh, incidentally, goodbye to all you feminists who go to bars and concerts but won't buy books. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye to all this, all them, all you. Goodbye women's movement, hello girls. <laughs> Goodbye to the great women who have done really brave things but are quiet now. Goodbye to the great women who are not quiet now. Goodbye to the organizers, blessed be. Goodbye to the poor women against pornography which committed the crime of trying to fight the pornography industry, misogyny, the bullying, the buying and selling of women, the use of women as objects, tried to stop all those good things. I mean all those bad things. I mean all those erotic things. <laughs> Goodbye, Kathy the incorrigible. Come on, why shouldn't women be locked up in brothels and fucked and beaten until they die? Moralist. Goodbye, Robin. You had a dream, dummy. You were supposed to have a fantasy. Goodbye. Adrienne, the poems were supposed to be bad, not good. Bye-bye, <laughs> Florence. Don't you know by now that children eat candy so as to be fucked by grown men? Goodbye, all you born-again virgins, all you timid, fragile creatures, all you conforming, ladylike Victorians with your puritanical aversions to suffering. Goodbye, women. Goodbye to all this. Goodbye to the silly women who went to jail fighting snuff, and goodbye to the fools who fought Playboy and Hustler and all the rest of it. Goodbye to all you Gidget types breaking laws, risking beatings, organizing against crim criminal misogynists, picketing, demonstrating, marching, so you can stay chaste for and faithful to the beach bum who's really going to be a doctor of your choice. There are easier ways, but goodbye to you, naive, right-wing, humorless fanatics who won't use them. Goodbye, Linda, held captive, repeatedly beaten and raped, forced to make deep throat, forced to be fucked by a dog. The girls say it's just fantasy, not violence. Goodbye to all them. Goodbye to the dummies who thought sex could express reciprocity and equality and still be sexy. Goodbye to the dummies who thought this movement could change the world. Goodbye to those precious Madonna types who shouted, free our sisters, free ourselves, in the streets and at rallies, at pimps and at police. Free Pat, free Ellen, free Gail, free Amber, free me. Goodbye to all this. Free the women. Give the girls what they want. Bye, everyone. Listening to the Skylight Books author reading series, 
Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.